Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our longtime listeners to the Global and the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. If this is your first time listening to an episode, welcome. We appreciate your interest and hope you will check out some of our past episodes, too. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, as well as your host for this wonderful program. I cannot tell you how excited I am about the interest that we have seen in these discussions, and I am so grateful to all of you who have made this such a special program. If you have not yet taken the opportunity, please do subscribe to make sure you are alerted when new episodes drop, and leave us a comment to let us know what you think. Without your insights, I'm just going to continue to pick topics that interest me. In other exciting news, we're so happy to announce our first ever sponsor of the Global in the Granite State podcast. A longtime supporter of our work, a huge thank you to McLean Middleton for providing valuable funds to ensure this program can continue forward. You are a true champion of global understanding, something we need more and more of these days. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. You can learn more about them at McLean.com. I cannot let this moment go unremarked, as it is one of the most consequential global issues of our time. The World Affairs Council of New Hampshire strongly condemns the illegal, inhumane, and irrational invasion of Ukraine. The work of the Council is in direct opposition to these types of military actions and joins a growing chorus of voices from around the world demanding that Russia remove all troops from the independent country of Ukraine. Whether bluster or real, the threats of nuclear force that are emanating from the Kremlin are wholly unacceptable and destabilizing. Our thoughts are with the people of Ukraine, and we hope all of their suffering is eased soon. If you would like to learn more about what is going on in Ukraine, the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire has a litany of resources on their website at wacnh.org. On today's episode, in honor of International Women's Day on March 8th and Women's History Month, we focused March episode on an insightful bit of research focused on the valuable role that women play in pro-democracy movements around the world and why authoritarians quote, fear women. We hope that you enjoy this discussion. We've all heard about the recent democratic backsliding of many countries around the world and the increase of authoritarian leaders that has correlated with that. However, how many of us truly know the definition of an authoritarian? I want to start this episode off with a brief description before jumping in. According to Britannica, in government, authoritarianism denotes any political system that concentrates power in the hands of a leader or small elite that is not constitutionally responsible to the body of the people. Authoritarian leaders often exercise power arbitrarily and without regard to existing bodies of law and they usually cannot be replaced by citizens choosing freely among various competitors in elections. The freedom to create opposition political parties or other alternative political groupings 
with which to compete for power with the ruling group is either limited or non-existent in authoritarian regimes. In addition to that, according to Zoe Marx, a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, it has been known for a while that part of an imperial project and part of an authoritarian governance system really hinges on very kind of rigid notions of gender and the family. And it's part of nation building. It's part of kind of the projection of power down to the household level. I reached out to Zoe and Erica Chenoweth, the Frank Stanton professor of the First Amendment at the Harvard Kennedy School, after reading their recent article for Foreign Affairs, Revenge of the Patriarchs, Why Authoritarians Fear Women. In reading this, one overriding thought came to mind, which according to Zoe was a major reason for their study in the first place. Part of it was actually just trying to figure out why it wasn't more of the conversation. So it was less about stumbling upon it or seeking out the discovery and more just trying to make sense of something that seemed to be an overriding theme. Erica was led to this research after a number of experiences had her needing a better understanding of the role that women play in resistance movements. About maybe 10 years ago, I was presenting some of this work at a workshop with a bunch of activists from around the world. And on the third day of this week-long workshop, I heard a bunch of the women activists around the, the room say that they didn't feel like their experience was being reflected in the conversation. And the next year I went to the same workshop. There was a whole different group of activists. And again, on about the third day, a bunch of the women said, we don't feel like our experience is being reflected in this content. So then, you know, the next year there was a workshop where there was sort of like a dedicated session on women and resistance. And still, this was unsatisfactory. And a bunch of the women said, we still don't feel like it's being reflected because it's being segmented into a separate topic area when actually our contributions to resistance have been foundational to their success. And it turns out that it's had a profound impact on the outcomes of these movements. So when the women were saying we shouldn't just talk about women as a separate matter, but it's been truly foundational in the success of revolutionary movements over the past 122 years, they were totally correct. And it's been a very underappreciated and under-researched area. Before we get to understanding the conclusions of their research, it is important to know who and what they were looking at in their data set. This is part of a global data collection effort. And so We've looked at all movements that are maximalist, which means that they're trying to overthrow the government or secede and create an independent country. And so what that means is we've really taken the whole universe of mass movements that fit those criteria and looked at whether or not women were participating in relatively modest numbers proportionally up to sort of a quarter of the population of the protesters, or even as much as a half. And some of the movements that I think are relatively iconic in recent years have been the Sudan People's Movement, where we saw these sort of iconic images of young women on the front lines, people standing or gathering in the square, and that was supported very much by tea sellers who are predominantly women. Grandmothers were preparing food and bringing it to support a mass sit-in in Khartoum. And that was a, a massively democratizing event for the country, but the transition is ongoing. And so a lot of the more recent protests that have seen quite good coverage of women on the front lines, I think are a sign of women's increasing participation in mass movements. But there's also one of the things that's most interesting 
there's this history that goes back to 1945, which is when our data collection efforts began, that's basically been a subjugated history. And so we haven't necessarily recorded or they haven't been part of the public imagination, all of the women who've participated both in violent revolutionary movements and in nonviolent mass campaigns. And in fact, there was only one campaign where we couldn't observe any women's participation amongst the nonviolent movements, and that was in Fiji. All of the other nonviolent campaigns or people's movements have had moderate to high levels of women's participation. I think the other kind of really iconic historical case is the people power movement in the Philippines, where we saw nuns, you know, standing in front of the military demanding a democratic overthrow of the government. That was echoed more recently um, in Myanmar, where we saw young women wearing, you know, beauty queen regalia, again, kind of these iconic feminine images as a way to push back against authoritarian power. And so there are lots of different ways that women use their gender identities and their gender roles, uh, but it really spans the globe. It happens in every region of the world. Yeah, there's some great cases from Latin America as well. The Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo is an obvious iconic example that maybe resonates with people in this hemisphere, having recalled their courage and facing down autocratic rule in Argentina. And then, of course, in Chile and in Brazil, women's participation in those movements, again, really formed the backbone of the pro-democratic movements there. After taking a look at 77 years of pro-democracy movements from around the world, they found, overwhelmingly, that when inclusive movements go up against authoritarians, they are more successful and sustain their gains at a much higher rate. As they state in their article, however, scholars of democracy have often framed women's empowerment as an outcome of democratization or even a function of modernization and economic development. It is interesting, then, that through their research... The thing that's really amazing that Zoe's and my research has started to uncover is how important women's participation in mass movements has been for the global spread of democracy. And this is what ties into this problem for autocrats, because what they fear more than anything is robust pro-democratic movements seriously challenging their grip on power. And what Zoe's and my research uncovers is that seriously challenging pro-democracy movements are the ones that have equal representation of women in the front lines in them. And so that's why it's no mistake that autocrats are basically trying to subjugate women in their countries because they don't want to face robust pro-democracy movements. And if they subordinate women in politics, in public life, in the workplace, and at home, then they don't have to worry about that. Before moving into why women play such a vital role in successful democratic movements, it is important to understand what Zoe and Erica mean by a successful movement. I think success is something that's really hotly debated amongst both scholars and activists. And there's limitations when you're working with a data set where you're trying to, you know, basically quantify trends. You have to have a relatively narrow operationalizable definition of success. So what we're looking at in our data set is really whether or not there's a change in power, whether or not the regime is, is overthrown. And the challenge that has faced a lot of 
popular protest movements is that when this success, this very narrowly defined success is achieved, it can sometimes also create a power vacuum. And so what happens next is really hotly contested. And so that's partly why we looked at this sort of five years out from that moment of transition, if you will, or five years out from the moment the door was kicked open, what's happening in terms of democracy and in terms of gender equality. From their research, most importantly, they found... Movements have historically had higher levels of women's participation than we knew, and those women have been incredibly important in making the movements more likely to succeed. When they succeed, they're more likely to have democratic gains and gender gains in the next five years after that success. It is now clear that mass movements that include women are more effective at mobilizing for change in governments. These inclusive movements must then have something in common that can be cited as why they are more successful, as well as what skills, connections, ideas, and abilities are women bringing to the table in these critical moments. Mass movements win effectively when they do four things very well. The first is when they assemble large and diverse coalitions. The second is when they innovate new methods of resistance or engage in tactical innovation that helps them maneuver when the opponent responds violently. The third is that they maintain organizational resilience and discipline when the opponent responds violently. And the fourth thing that's really critical is that they initiate loyalty shifts. They effectively split the regime, right? They, they get different pillars of the regime's support to move away from it. So whether that's economic and business elites, whether that's security forces, whether that's civil servants, et cetera. The reality is that when women are participating in large numbers, that is to say when they're kind of equally represented in the movement, the movements are better at doing all four of those things, right? They're better at channeling the social power of the women who are participating in their spheres of influence personally, they're better at innovating tactics because they are able to draw on the knowledge that women in the society have about what would really work. They also are able to then unleash the social networks of all of their participants to engage in those loyalty shifts, which often, to be honest, happen on a very interpersonal kind of micro level, like people engaging in difficult conversations with family members and things that just convince them that they're not going to show up for work that day just to make her be quiet kind of thing, right? And then they're better at maintaining organizational resilience and, and discipline when repression increases. And so, you know, really, we're, we're just talking about basics for how movements win and the critical role that actually excluding women or sidelining them would have in really undercutting those critical capacities that a movement might have. Through this lens, it becomes very easy to see why authoritarian leaders see it as in their interest to keep women out of power, out of key groups, and to severely restrict their rights. They can break society down into multiple us versus them scenarios. It is much harder for communities to come together and push back against these governments. You see this in Russia, where Putin is rolling back women's rights, talking about traditional families, trampling on LGBTQ plus rights, and ensuring that dissent is quickly taken care of. You see this in China, where women are being systematically silenced, and where Uyghur women are forced to live with men from outside their communities. The list goes on and on in every part of the world. You would then think that these pro-democracy movements would recognize the value that women have brought to the table and the benefits all of society can enjoy by making space for women in the post-revolution sphere. 
therefore may surprise you that in terms of integrating women into the post-movement government, we don't have systematic data. So this is somewhat case by case, but overwhelmingly we know from both armed conflicts and the sort of peace building process and from mass social movements and the kind of reconstitution of power afterwards that there's a patriarchal pact that usually forms. And so what that means is that men have dominated politics and business and you know positions of power they're more interested in brokering agreements with other elite men. And so even when women do participate, it's usually from the elite classes, often in this very somewhat region to region, but often people who have family relationships with former government officials or with other sort of business elites. And so I would say on the whole, transition processes are not very inclusive. They've gotten more inclusive, but particularly after armed conflict. And even then the scores are quite poor. We have almost no international consensus around how to broker transitions after mass nonviolent movements. And so that's really like an opportunity for people who are interested in foreign affairs, for kind of the international community to think more proactively about what do you do after a mass campaign, especially if it's seeking democracy, but isn't using force. Like we don't have a toolkit for that. Well, and what happens when a democracy movement fails? We've seen this happen time and time again, but in terms of this discussion, how do authoritarians react when women have been integral in an effort to remove the leader from power? When those movements fail and in countries where you don't see successful campaigns, authoritarians are actually much more likely to crack down on gender rights. They're likely to close space for women to participate in politics. And this is all part of a broader toolkit of relying on masculine power and this narrative of threats to the nation as a way to lean on gender inequalities to bolster their control of the government. And I think it's important for people to understand that because when we see threats on you know, women's access to reproductive health care, when we see women being sort of pushed out of things like judicial nominations or out of the political party space, you know, that has real knock-on effects, not only for those women and the women in their lives, but also for the country as a whole and its prospects, both for democracy and for development. So in fact, the more women participate in a protest movement, the more gendered the backlash is. So if you have a protest movement or a violent insurrection that's male-dominated, you see slightly lower levels of backlash. And I think this is partly because of a sort of elite male tendency to work with other elite men, even if they're their opposition. But when it's including women, that's a much broader swath of society. And so that's when you see sort of the most severe crackdowns, which is really particularly bad for not just democratic outcomes, but social well-being and civic life in general. However, if women do play crucial roles in building successful pro-democracy campaigns, as has been shown by this research, should authoritarian leaders be looking for ways to push them away? Shouldn't they instead look to bring them in, make sure they are content with the system so they will not join a democracy movement and overthrow the government? Or am I simply giving authoritarians too much credit here? Well, I think that's a great question. And it speaks to where these pro-democratic movements even came from in the first place. The truth is, we don't really know when societies get to the sort of breaking point where people just rise up and say that they're not going to take it anymore. It's extremely difficult to predict what the trigger events would be and then whether those triggers actually lead to mass mobilization and whether then the mass mobilization is itself successful on those kind of four dimensions that we've been talking about. But what I will say is that it does seem like 
an important insight <laughs> that women did mobilize and have mobilized and continue to mobilize in ways in which they're overcoming truly adverse conditions. We can expect that to continue, but at the same time, we can also expect things to be very difficult as these assaults on women's rights accumulate. And so I would say that the patriarchal authoritarian strategy is likely an effective one in the short term, but potentially self-defeating in the long term, but that really depends on people power. And the more that we can support civil society and women's sense of agency and capacity to determine the course of their own futures, the less we'll have to deal with the truly low lows of patriarchal authoritarianism. I'll add quickly, the reality is that a more gender equitable society is also likely to be more developed. It has better indicators in terms of economic inclusion. Women's labor force participation has positive benefits on families. It has positive benefits on educational attainment. There are all these spillover effects from gender equity and even just incremental gender equity. It also makes countries more peaceful and less likely to experience civil conflict. So I think that it's partly the sort of short-term gambit, right, for authoritarian leaders to think, oh, if I subjugate women, I can really like build this kind of masculine pact around me and I'll bring women in as, as mothers and wives and part of the sort of nation building of the family. You know, that doesn't actually serve the country's long-term growth opportunities. It doesn't serve prosperity. It doesn't serve, you know, peace and economic resilience. And so there are really like good reasons to be strategically egalitarian. And those are at cross purposes with what most authoritarian leaders are doing in their governance priorities. And so I think that's part of the bigger picture on both why those governments are fragile. Ultimately, it's usually an economic shock that leads to those tipping points that Erica was talking about. And it's not really that women are just rising up for their own rights. They're rising up because they see that the country is moving in the wrong direction. In the end, this is clearly an area of research that can provide vital insights for a world that seems to be slipping further and further into authoritarian control each and every day. For those who truly believe in the power of democracy, it is vital that equitable societies are built, maintained, and supported. For those countries struggling to shed their strongmen leaders and authoritarian systems, know that a fully inclusive movement is your best bet to move forward. Finally, if you do find yourself in that transition period, create expansive and inclusive coalitions that will benefit all of society. Protecting rights for and amplifying voices of your pro-democracy community builds a better world, and if you won't stand up for others' rights, how can you count on anyone to stand up for your own? I would like to end this episode with this final thought from Zoe. Some of our colleagues are calling women's rights the canary in the coal mine for mm. democracy, that it's sort of where we see the first and most striking kind of incursions into human rights and, and civil rights is really on, on women. And so it is a useful canary in the coal mine for right. thinking about any country's movement towards or away from authoritarianism. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Global in the Granite State, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Please do subscribe to this podcast and leave us a comment on what you think. Your feedback is important to us. 
Also, check out our website to learn more about other ways you can get involved in global discussions and help to make this world a better place. The more we know, the more we understand, and the more we can work together for the best possible world. Until next time, I am Tim Horgan. The Global in the Granite State is a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. The producer, host, audio technician, editor, and all of that is Tim Horgan. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our episode music is 50,000 Volts of Democracy by Legally Blind. Mm-hmm.